Uh, so we're going back to basics on this matter of the Church of Jesus Christ, and uh, we were thinking, what is the Church? And we'll start off with that, what is the Church? Uh, well, all sorts of answers to that. Um, huge old building needing repair, some people would say that's a church, or a collection of irrelevant aging people, well actually all people are aging, aren't they? Um, or a bunch of weird loonies, um, happy, clappy, completely in a world of their own, making misleading claims to gullible people and no use to anybody. I'm sure there are churches like that. Um, or a church as a branch of social services uh, that we just, churches just help people get by on earth. Or is the church the people who know and experience the risen Christ? Are these the people of God's favor? The ones who have had their sins forgiven? The only people who see the world as it really is? Are these the people of the future who of all the people on the earth are setting their eyes on what God has purposed, their eyes set on the world to come, something beautiful and better. Are these the people who are God's project uh, as he forms a new humanity being made ready for the glory of the world to come? Is the church the place where God is? If you want to find a place where God is, you go to this community and you find that God is there and he is at work amongst these people. Well, I'm going to go for that second page as my description of what the church is. So uh, let's uh, sort of go back to basics and uh, I'd like you to think of the dead parrot sketch. This amuses me. I, I think of it as a contemporary cultural reference, but actually it's ages and ages old. It's the man who goes into the shop and complains that the parrot that he bought not just half an hour ago is dead. And he's got, that's his John Cleese with, oh no, you can hardly see it, can you? Uh, that's, the, that's the parrot. That's supposed to be John Cleese. Uh, it shows on my screen, but I'm sorry about that. And he says, this parrot is dead. It does not respond. It does not squeak or squawk. It does not move. And the man says, oh, no, no, it's fine. It's just stunned. They stun easy, Norwegian blue, is what he says. It don't fly. It would be fallen on the floor if you hadn't nailed it to its perch. Well, uh, and John Cleese complains that the parrot is dead, uh, which it plainly is. It's a, I, I think it's a very funny sketch, but you have to see it on some historic medium like YouTube. Anyway, the parrot wasn't being a parrot. It wasn't doing parrot. It wasn't doing the things that parrot, parrots do. It wasn't squawking, wasn't moving, wasn't flying, wasn't anything. It wasn't doing parrot. It wasn't being parrot. And my question is, oh dear, I think I've clicked too far. How do we do church? If church is the place where the living God is present and where God is at work, what should church be? The, in the dead parrot sketch, the parrot does not do parrot, is not doing it, is not being parrot, and the churches of Jesus Christ, well, unless they're dead, they ought to be doing church and being church. And that's what I want to look at this morning, uh, that ch the churches shouldn't be dead parrot churches, but they should be living churches where God is at work and doing and being church. 
So what is being church and what is doing church? And I'm going to take us to Paul's letter to the Romans. So we had a reading from Ephesians. So let's go to Romans. In case you don't know, this is a letter by St. Paul. He wrote a letter to the church in Rome. It gets called Romans for short. It's his letter to the Romans. And he spends the first... It's a long letter. It's a very classic letter. It, uh, it subsequently got divided into chapters. He didn't write it in chapters, but it, for convenience, it got divided into chapters. And the first 11 of the chapters are all about how amazingly God saves people. And then in chapter 12, he says, Therefore, I'm just going to read... Romans 12 and the first 13 verses. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality and so on. So that is uh, what I'm going to look at this morning in the subject of how to be church in connection with God's gifts. And I had an agenda of what I wanted to say, but then I came to this passage and the passage had a slightly different agenda. So I'm going to follow the agenda of what uh, God's put down in his words, things that's probably more reliable than what I had in mind to say. And I'm going to say, do it this way. Number one, the fountain of being church, which is God's mercy. The response of being church, offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. The attitude of being church, a new humble mind. And fourthly, I'll just look at what it says, how it works this out in the illustration of the body and the gifts. So those are the four things I'd like us to look at. So number one, the fountain of being church, God's mercy. Click. It starts, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. 
So notice each of those is important. Uh, notice the I urge you. So I want us to notice he's urging us. He's saying, I want to motivate you. I want to get you going on this. I want, to, I want you to feel this is something I'm up for and I'm going to do it and I'm, uh, 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 I'm motivated in this. So he starts off, I urge you. And there's a, a therefore, and the therefore connects with by the mercies of God. So this is the starting point. The starting point is not the pastor thinking people aren't working hard enough, therefore do more, give more, work harder. The starting point is God's mercy. And what is God's mercy? So it's his kindness and it's his compassion and it's his pity. And that is what he's been talking about in the first 11 chapters in a most marvelous way describing the enormous, amazing quality of God's mercy. And I'd like to try and summarize the first 11 chapters in three little points. Uh, I think the first thing that he sets out saying in these first chapters is about the human condition. And he says, human beings fall desperately short of God's glory. That's what human beings are like. We are born in a sad and sorry and lost condition. We were made to fit with God's glory because God is glorious. And we were made to be part of that. But sadly, tragically, we're nothing like that. We fall short of God's glory. And we have become creatures uh, where it's endemic for us to be idol worshippers. We make up our own gods. We have foulness in our systems instead of purity. We have selfishness instead of selflessness. We have rebellion instead of submission. Uh, Submission to God and submission to what is right. And this vileness puts us in a different place altogether. Instead of being fit for God's glory, we are in a different place altogether. Uh, A place of death and sin and lostness and condemnation. And Paul, uh, the writer, was a real Jewish expert and he knows that God has worked through all the, the Jewish history and the Jewish scriptures. And he says a bit about the, the Jewish law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, etc. The whole paraphernalia of the law of God. And he says that didn't help the Jews, didn't help them to be saved, and it doesn't help us either. What the law basically does, it says, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, without lifting a finger to help us. And uh, as he goes on through, he says, what really what this does, if it gets to your conscience, it just kills you. Because you can't do the things that you know you ought to do. And this is our sad and sorry condition. And then he says... Human fall, the law is powerless, but God has stepped in to change this. And he says that God, most remarkably and most amazingly, hasn't left the human race 
in that lostness and sin and condemnation, but God has decided that he'll do something about it. He didn't have to, but that's what he decided he will do. And his intervention and his rescue takes the form of sending Jesus, God's own son, come down to be like us and to live a human life and in particular to bear the consequences of our fall, that is to say death, because the wages of sin is death. And he died and he came to die. Like a sacrificial animal, he died paying the price for the sin of others. That's what God did, an atoning death, a death that puts things right with God. And whatever it took to heal this enormous injury, to pay this enormous debt, to put back this enormous fault Jesus did when he died on the cross. Not only did he die on the cross, but God raised him from the dead and vindicated him and said, you condemned him, but I vindicate him. He is the greatest. He is the most glorious. He is the most brilliant. He is the most right person And he deserves to be put in the very highest place. And God raised him from the dead and brought him from that place of condemnation and sin and guilt and lostness and shame and brought him to the place of honor and glory and exaltation and greatness. And that's where Jesus is now. And he is the risen, glorious Christ. And he imparts to his people his risen power through the Holy Spirit, and Christians live a new life because Christ rose from the dead. Do I have an amen? Amen. And this, which I've briefly encapsulated imperfectly, but I've tried to give you the outline of it, this is total, undeserved kindness. This is what God gives people. This is good news. This is brilliant. And it is the mercy of God. And uh, if, if you know that in your own life, then there's an amen there, isn't there? There's a thank you, Lord. And if you don't know it, this is the offer uh, that, that God is making in this day and age. You could have that. That could be you. You could have forgiveness. You could have new life. You need to ask God for that. You need to go and sort that out with him. And he's very willing That's the whole point of this age of history, that God is willing to bless you in this same way. Anyway, it started off, number one, the fountain of being church is God's mercy. So let's get that in place. That's how come church can be church, because God has done this in his mercy for people. Second thing about church being church Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So second thing is the response of of being church is to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. So there's a body, and uh, the logic of this is he's done everything for me, and I give everything to him. Uh, He's shown me total kindness 
and I respond with total gratitude. Uh, he offered himself without reservation, and I, what else can I do but offer myself to him totally without reservation, without holding anything back? Such mercy deserves my life, my soul, my all. And that's what Christians do, isn't it? We come to the Lord and say, I give my whole life to you. And whether whatever you want to do with me, wherever you want to lead me, whatever you want to make of me or withhold from me, I give that all to you. And that's what Christians do. Am I right? That, that's what being a Christian is. And uh, like the old animal sacrifice, which was totally offered to the Lord, our lives are totally offered to him. But as it says here, it isn't sort of a, a once thing and then... Um, you know, like an animal sacrifice can only last an amount and then the animal's gone. But it says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So there's a continualness about this. I, I, I would say there's an everydayness about this. That every day, whether we say it in, out in so many words, but the principle of it is, every day, Lord, I'm giving myself to you. Every day. I am offering myself to you as a living sacrifice every day. Whatever you want me to do, I will do it. Wherever you want me to go, I will go. I am yours today. And that's right, isn't it? This is how Christians, this is how we're supposed to live. I hope this is how we do live. Uh, maybe imperfect, but we, the principle of it is that our bodies are living sacrifices. And it says such sacrifices are holy and pleasing to God. Uh, the, the idea of, of, of this being a holy sacrifice, that even our lives offered to him that can be seen to be holy, something that pleases God. I find that rather amazing, actually, that he could be interested in my little offering or my imperfect offering. Think about the, the, uh, and the feeding of the 5,000. They, they looked around and found... You know, what have you got to feed this large number of people? And they found a boy with, I can't remember, how many was it? Yeah, he brought five loaves and two fishes, was it? And, uh, and the Lord said, oh, I'll take that. That's fine. I can do a lot with that. Uh, and I think it's, it, it's us offering our five loaves and two fishes. Uh, can you make anything of that, Lord? And he says, oh, yeah, you'd be surprised. But it's, we're, we're offering what we have. That's how we do it. And he says, this is your spiritual act of worship. And I looked in the books, and there's all sorts of ways of interpreting that. Logikos, that's the word translated spiritual. It's from which we get logical. Looks like it, doesn't it? Logikos. Uh, does he say, does it mean logical, that this fits rationally? I mean, one thing that I read in the commentaries, which I rather liked, actually, was the idea that Behind the universe is the logos, that means the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he says this, that, that the idea that under the universe is um, the word, God's word. Some meaning and depth and absoluteness and rightness. Under the universe is the logos, and this sacrifice is logikos it's like that it fits with that 
So that, I think that's why people struggle to translate it. It doesn't mean spiritual or uh, in touch with ultimate reality or um, fits with how things really are. But anyway, uh, whatever it is there, it, this is a, a great thing to do. And uh, the next word is latria, which means priestly worship. So this, so when it's translated worship, that's right. It is what priests do. Offer ourselves to God as living sacrifices day by day uh, is worship. So just saying that singing isn't the only worship. I mean, singing is worship. But it's, uh, you know, when, when you go into the office and you say, it's going to be a tough day, Lord, but I'm giving myself to you, that's a spiritual act of worship as well. Yeah. And when you try and help your neighbor who's got their drains blocked or their roof leaking or whatever, and you say, I'm doing this for the Lord, that's a spiritual act of worship too. So we could have a, a time of worship going out and clearing the leaves from the gutter, I suppose, couldn't we? Anyway, so I ask, this is number two about being church. Number one was God's mercy. And number two was offering ourselves as living sacrifices. And if we're going to be church, we need to understand God's mercy and be deeply impressed by it. And we need to offer ourselves in response as living sacrifices. So I say, is that, is that us? I hope it is. And I urge you, like Paul does, I urge you to be this. Number three, the attitude of being church the new humble mind. So he goes on to say, now I've only got as far as verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. He says, be transformed, be metamorphosized, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So this is transformation that comes from the inside outwards. It's not an imposition by force or coercion or human effort or unaided human effort. This is something that starts on the inside, the renewing of the mind. Now when he says mind, he's not saying this is just for students and clever people. I mean, when he says mind, he means the way we deeply think the way we deeply feel and react, the way we value things and weigh things, and the way that we plan in our hearts and minds. Oh, I could aim for that if I did this. So that's what he's meaning by mind. You know, you're, it's quite a deep thing. It's not just doing crossword puzzles. It's, it's how you look at the world and how you react to the world and how you live in the world. So I've done a little thing there. Uh, it's supposed to be thought, that's supposed to be heart, and that's supposed to be what direction you go from. Look at chapter 8, verse 6, if you wouldn't mind. Chapter 8, verse 6, where he talks about mind. And the translation sort of slightly obscures it, because what he says is the mind of the flesh and the mind of the spirit and flesh means, as I shall say in a moment, uh, the power and the system of thinking and living without God. And the spirit is the spirit that I referred to earlier, 
the spirit of the risen Christ. And in uh, chapter 8, verse 5, he says, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man or the mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So this mind, there's the mind of the flesh or the mind of the spirit. And he says, if you're a Christian, the mind that you have should be the spiritual mind, should be the things that desires the things of the spirit and is led by the things of the spirit and sees the things of the spirit and longs for the things of the spirit. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. So just going back to 12, he, he's still talking about the mind, isn't he? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And he says, don't have a mind of the flesh. Mind of the flesh sees things through this grid of self. And it was pointed out to me that if you take an S and an E and an L and an F from flesh and move them around a bit, you've got an H left over. You, you end up from the word flesh, you get the word self. And of course, they're very... You know, that's a, that's a helpful linkage to make. You know, the idea it's all about me. And he says, don't think that way. It, you know, don't be, have that thinking going on inside you. And he says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this world, as I said before, is a system with everything but without God. And that's a powerful system. And it presses and pushes in a certain direction. And it presses and pushes on us. And uh, just to put a, on an anecdotal level, it presses and pushes. And, and what we think is a good time. You know, what do you think is a good time? I, I know that uh, in, you know, in the student world, I guess, going out and having a good time might mean one thing. And going out and having a good time, if you're a Christian, might mean something completely different. What is a good time? Uh, what is having a laugh? Uh, is that having a good time? You, well, we know that the world um, might have a very different view of that. And uh, on a more sort of profound level, on a more um, philosophical level, or the thinking about gender and the thinking about identity and so many other things that the world has without God can squeeze us into a mold of thinking and change us. And he says, don't let that happen, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have new ideas from the gospel, new ideas from the Bible, new ideas from uh, the scriptures about what is good. Ah, this is good. What is beautiful? What is worthy? What I live life for? Be renewed in your mind as to how you think about these things and be transformed. So the new and humble mind. And he says in verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Don't think the way the world thinks. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve that's three words for one word in Greek. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. So just picking out things that it said here. This works. 
you will find that you can test it and approve it. So that's an interesting thing, isn't it? That it, it, It's not just a claim that doesn't really live up to experience. I mean, there are many things that the Christian world claims, and they're not all. They don't all live up to experience. I mean, the claim that God will always make people healthy and wealthy is not one that the Bible makes, but some Christians sadly make that claim. But this is true. You will, if you offer your lives as a living sacrifice to God, you will find that you can test and approve God's good will. It does work. In real life, you can test and approve it. You can find that uh, it works and it's good. Christian life isn't always immediately pleasant, but at the bottom of it, I don't think any Christian would say, I wish I'd never become a Christian. I don't think any Christian would ever say that. I don't think any Christian would ever say, I trusted God and he let me down. I've been through difficult times, but that's not the same thing as saying, God let me down. God's will, looked at maturely, is something I test and approve. And uh, so not my will, but God's will. And it's not a bad will, but a good will. His good and pleasing, not horrible, but pleasing and perfect will. An interesting word used there for perfect. You're not saying, I think it's saying it's not pointless, but purposeful. God's will is not pointless, but purposeful. His perfect will. So the new and humble mind which transforms us. And I just stop to ask ourselves, we're all in motion. We're all changing. And I trust and hope we are going forward. You know, sometimes Christians slip back. But we want to be transformed and changed in this good way and maybe it would be a prayer when we go home to say Lord please do be changing me and please be letting me find your good pleasing and perfect will in my life and I'm just carrying on in this matter of the mind verse 3 for the grace given me you notice there's a lot of giving going on here it pops up in a number of ways, but by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, so the, here's some more thinking, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober thinking. I just put that rather clunky translation in there. So the thing he says, don't overthink yourself. Now, don't, not overthinking in the sense of thinking too much, but thinking too highly. Don't big yourself up in your own thinking. But think with sober thinking, with healthy thinking about yourself. And he says, that's how I live. That God's given me certain grace. And by that grace, I say, and he says, you should think according to the measure that God has given you. So God's given you a certain measure. He says a measure of faith. I think it comes down to the same thing as grace, as he referred to earlier. Um, God has given you certain grace. Think about that soberly. Don't big yourself up and don't put yourself down. God has given me 
This is what it says. God has given me something. God has given me to be somebody. I'm not the same as person sitting next to me. Not the President of the United States or the owner of Amazon. I'm me. But God's made me to be me. And he's given me what he sees fit to make me me. And I think what Paul is saying here is be the somebody that God's given you to be. Spurgeon, the Victorian preacher, once said, uh, be yourself. If you don't be yourself, nobody else is going to do it. Um, Sort of slightly amusing thing. And and I think the way Paul is coming at it here is you don't have to big yourself up, make yourself something you're not. don't have to be puffed up. And he says, but don't put yourself down either. Just think of yourself with sober judgment. What has God given me? And in terms of puffing oneself up and putting oneself down, it's actually possible to do both of those at once. Uh, People make both mistakes at once because they're insecure about what God has given them. They puff themselves up and pretend they're bigger than they are. And you get this sort of complicated thing with the ego going on. And he says, don't do that. He says, just think with sober judgment and gratitude is what God has given me, and be that person and play that part. You know, by God's grace, well, lots of things I can't do. I can't juggle. I can't remember everything. So let me just be the person that I am. Uh, by God's grace, I can do some things. I can care for people. I can listen to them. I can contribute something. I can give something. I can love. And I can be secure that that's a real thing of value that I can do in God's church. So the third thing, the attitude of being church, the new humble mind. So let's come to the fourth thing, which is to look at this matter of the body and gifts, which is the bit I wanted to do a lot of, but the Scriptures seem to push me in the direction of just adding this as the fourth point. So Paul says it's like a human body. And he says in verse 4, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so that's what it's like in the church. So let's think about the human body. There's a human body. It has many parts, all belong together. So arms, legs, hair, face, etc., etc., and they all form one body. And each bit does something different. So it would be a very strange thing if your nose attempted to chew your food for you. I think it would be rather strange. Or if your feet attempted... Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Each bit does something different. There's hearing bits... Smelling bits, digesting bits, bits that bend. They all do something different. That's how, that's how bodies work. And Paul says this is how it is with Christ and his churches. There is one body of Christ, but many parts. That's what he says. So in Christ, we who are many form one body. Uh, so he... It, it, He's moved, you've noticed, from God's mercies and offering ourselves into community. And there's a sort of chain there, isn't there? And I want to encourage us 
to see that and to say that's obvious. And that's what I'm living from my receiving of God's mercy to my offering myself as a living sacrifice to being a contributing, functioning part of God's community. Now, the way God does communities, he does it in little communities, doesn't he? Called churches. But it's one great church that operates in little bubbles of community. And he says, as we do that, we have this interdependence. We have unity, we have diversity, we have interdependence. And all the parts work together and they all need one another. So in Christ, we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. So, I mean, young people. Young people need young people, but they also need old people. So I think it's such a pity when you get student churches that are only for students because the church is meant to be a family of all sorts of people with all sorts of ages. Young people need older people. I don't think it's nice to have a a church that's just single people or just married people or just middle-class people, but a, a, a... a mixture of all sorts of different people with different functions, different characteristics that function together. Each member belongs to all the others. Capable people need people who think things more simply. Clever people need down-to-earth people. We need a whole range of different types of people to make up the richness and beauty of God's church. And I'm grateful to God because I think in our church here, we, by and large, have a good example of that. That's by God's grace. So the human body, and he says that's one way of looking at it. We're all parts of the body. We all function and work together. And then he, he changes the picture, but he's talking about exactly the same thing. And he talks about gifts So, in the same breath, verse 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. He's talking about the same thing, but just using a different picture. So, this is gifts. And the the word for gift is charismata. I don't know where you put the emphasis, where you say charismata, charismata. Uh, And uh, what does that word mean? It means a free gift. That's what it means, a free gift. I know we have the charismatic movement, which puts a particular use on that word, uh, meaning uh, taking it to mean supernatural. But it doesn't, actually, charismata doesn't mean supernatural. It just means free, generous gift. And we have generous gifts. It's not supernatural so much as super generous. And, And at back of this is, Jesus gives generous gifts to his church. It's the nature of Christ's victory and his resurrected power. I read Psalm 68 at the beginning, and you might not have spotted that Psalm 68 is the one that Paul quotes in Ephesians, where he says, having ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. And Psalm 68 is almost like military conquest, isn't it? Uh, This triumphant king takes people as gifts and then gives them as gifts and that's what paul is quoting in ephesians 4 jesus the king gives generous gifts to his church and what gifts does he use he says if 
the word man is not in the original, but if the gift is prophesying, let him use it in prophesying. Sorry, let him use it in prophesying. Let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. And that's the word deacon there. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. He's not giving an exhaustive list of all the different sorts of service that people can do, but he is giving a list. And he says all sorts of different things. And uh, if if this is your gift to do them, then do them. And... uh, prophesying, speaking God's word in a, um, in a edifying, um, perhaps in a fresh way, serving, teaching, encouraging, inspiring, that parakalo, parakalo, to encourage and motivate, to share stuff, contributing to the needs of others, uh, to, what's it to say, to lead, govern, le- leadership, yeah, it means to sort of stand before, take, to take responsibility. If he's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. So he's got that list. And these are a list of gifts which are abilities to bless other people. And in some ways, a person's gift is noticed, perhaps first of all, by other people. How is that person blessing me? What way does this person bring blessing into the congregation? Well, that's, that's, that's their gift. And he says... Uh, if it's prophesying, uh, prophesy in accordance with your faith. I don't know why I put that. If you're able to serve, serve. If you're able to teach, teach. If you're able to encourage, encourage. And I think he's just saying, do the thing that God has given you to do. The way you can bless people, do it. Be a blessing. Use your gift. And then he, when he talks about sharing, um, what's it? the translation here? Um, contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. Yeah, uh, if if you're a person who can give, be generous in giving. If you're leading, do it diligently, uh, wholeheartedly. Give your good care and attention to that. Do a good job of it. Be being who you are, be doing what you do and do it and do so wholeheartedly and willingly. That's one of the things that's cropped up in our week of prayer, isn't it? May people be willing. May there be a willingness within our church to be what God wants us to be. So those are the gifts that he mentions there and perhaps this evening we could take that particular thought on some more but I'm just going to mention the context so it isn't just a sort of mechanical thing if you've got a a teaching gift just spew out information to people Uh, it's in a context and the context is in verse 9 I put a subtle context in which gifts are used and I'll just mention what it says without going very much further it's in the context of love love must be sincere genuine care Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. So there's a moral framework and a moral clarity. And verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. There's a sort of a a devotion to this. Uh, I'd put a deeply consistent motivation and a humility. And verse 
12, it says, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Um, Never lacking in zeal, keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. There's a certain sort of tenacity to it and a certain, not done with resentment, but done with willingness. And I'll just put etc. because there's a whole lot more which I won't try and bring in this morning. So what have we looked at? How does church do church? How can church be not like the dead parrot, which is dead, he is dead. It's not just stunned. It is an ex-parrot. This parrot is gone. How can church be church? The fountain of it is God's mercy, the wonderful heart-changing mercy of Jesus Christ. The response of being church is to offer myself as a living sacrifice. That is not something only super-Christians do. That is every Christian does that. All to Jesus I surrender, I surrender all, one of the old songs. The attitude of being church, the attitude the new humble mind, the new way of thinking, the new way of feeling, the new way of acting and reacting, and the community. I'm part of a body. I am a particular part with a particular contribution, so contribute that. God has made me something and given me some grace and some faith and some gift. That's what he's given me given that to somebody else that's for me and I want to play that part and I want to be that blessing in that fellowship the best I can and Paul as I said to begin says I urge you and I want to finish by urging us let's do this let's be this church let's in this particular season which is going to be a tricky one for us let's at least decide this I will be in the church, the person that God wants me to be. I will be the best blessing I can be. I will offer myself in his service the best I possibly can. And uh, may God bless that. May God build up his church. May God show that the church of Jesus Christ is not a dead thing, but a living thing. Shall we hear his urging? Shall we say yes? Shall we be this sort of church? Shall we be the very people who demonstrate in Brighton in 2021 and 2022 and onwards that the church of the risen Jesus Christ is not dead but alive? Amen. We're going to sing a song to close. We're going to sing, What a Gift of Grace is Jesus.